with that, I guess we can close our Bibles and enjoy the rest of your morning. But you know me better than that. Why would I uh, take something that we could say in five minutes and find an opportunity to say it in 45? So here's what we're going to do this morning. After all, this is a question that actually is not that straightforward. It is much more complicated than that at another level because these questions are, uh, this question is assuming a few things. First, it's assuming that the church is something you would want to join. Who can join a church? It assumes that the church is something you'd actually want to, which is certainly not the case if, according to popular assumption, the church is just some outdated moral institution standing in the way of the progress we are making as a society. It's certainly not the case, again, if the church was built simply on shared preferences or political opinions. We discussed this at length last week, and I actually want to encourage you to go back and to listen to that first message. We post all of our sermons online. Instead, though, according to the Bible, if we take God's word about his church seriously, the church is the place where, in fact, heaven touches earth. It's the place where God's presence and power breaks through. The place where God shows up in the midst of our flesh and blood experience. It is the new temple of the living God. You want to experience him? Belong to a church. There's no better place then, if that is true, there's no better place to belong. Who wants to join, who would join a church? Again, the Bible assumes, well, this is the place you were made for. And anyone who would see Christ and put faith in him for the forgiveness of, the sin, his, of their sins will find this bound up as part of the package deal. Who can join a church? Again, this question assumes the church is a place you'd want to join, but it also assumes a second thing, that there are some who can't. If the question, again, is who can join a church, there are some, again, who can't. Isn't that strange to hear? That almost assumes, the question assumes like an an arm's length posture? Isn't the church struggling enough throughout the particularly in the United States, that we really need to bother ourselves with this question of who can join it? After all, shouldn't we all be eager for the church to grow? Do we really want to set up rules and boundaries and tests of who really can be an authentic part of it? It reminds me of college. Uh, In college, I, uh, the first few years, particularly how many of my friends, we were in, I was in a Christian college at the time, and uh, I think mostly as a coping mechanism, uh, we would create these lists of everything we were looking for in a significant other, the kind of woman that we wanted to marry s- someday. And we had these sitting in our dorm rooms all the way while we couldn't get a date to save our lives. Isn't it enough that just someone is interested? Certainly, we're going to get to this. It is true that anyone can join the church. Absolutely anyone can get in on this. But it's also a little more complicated than that, and for this we have to back up and look at what Jesus says right before this passage and one of the most famous conversations in the entire Bible between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus and something that Jesus has to say about the new birth. I want to invite you again to keep your Bibles open and look at these words with me. We're going to be referring to it often. We're going to be answering, though, five questions when it comes to the new birth, and to be honest, I'm borrowing these questions from Timothy Keller, who, I, who, when he explained this passage, I just so latched on to that structure. I think he will be well-served by it uh, as well. It's helped me to make sense of what can be somewhat of a complex argument. These five questions, though, are what we're going to answer today. Who, the new birth, who is it for? 
Second, where is it from? Third, what does it do? Number four, how does it come? And number five, how can you tell? Who is it for? Where is it from? What does it do? How does it come? How can you tell? Sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. But let's get to that first one. Who is it for? Who is it for? Now, John's gospel, more so than any other gospel, is famous for zooming in on these conversations that Jesus has had with specific individuals. It's conversations we don't hear about in other places in the Bible. And here, the man that Jesus is meeting with is a pretty significant person of substance, a man of great influence. We call him an insider. Not only was he a Pharisee, it says, Nicodemus, uh, again, was a professional clergyman. You could, you could put it that way, a teacher of the law whose job it was to teach people what God's word had to say and help them to walk in light of it, a professional clergyman. John also tells us that he was a ruler of the Jews. What does that mean? It means he was a member of the Sanhedrin, a ruling council. That he, this ruling council was responsible for governing and protecting the nation of Israel. Because of this, Nicodemus would have been not only incredibly educated and likely very wealthy because of his social position, he would have been very well liked. People would have wanted to buddy up with Nicodemus. Add to that, unlike, unlike many of the religious leaders in Jesus' day, Nicodemus likes Jesus. Just read the Gospels and you see how rare that is. He is a teacher of the law who comes to him. Do you notice how he starts? He starts off saying, Rabbi, which is uh, in this time a great title of respect. And later in the second century, this will become a a position that someone can occupy and be trained for. At this point, it's more like a a position. It's a a great thumbs up. It's It's a title of respect saying something like great teacher. He's aiming to flatter Jesus. Rabbi, it's as if he says, teacher, I'm kind of a big fan. You see, Rabbi, you've, you've caught our attention. You, these miracles you're doing specifically, and these things you're teaching. We just want you to know there is nothing like it. We see it. Several of us have been talking, and we want you to know, and we, th- we think you'll be glad to know that we're with you. Yeah, we recognize not everybody else is with you, but there's some of us, like myself, who we see the signs. We've, in fact, decided that what you're saying and doing, the only place it could be coming from is from God himself. Flattery aside, it is really fascinating. Nicodemus does not come as a skeptic. He doesn't come as one who's aiming to take shots. He comes looking to say to Jesus all that they surely have in common. And you really think that this would be good news for Jesus and his disciples. After all, Nicodemus is what you might call a top recruit especially if you're trying to build a movement, if you're trying to get this church thing, this Christianity off the ground. Nicodemus is the definition of a social influencer, the definition of a religious insider, and add to that, he's also a big fan of Jesus who doesn't need to be conned or tricked or manipulated or bribed into following. If you're looking to add anyone to the team, you want to add someone like Nicodemus. If you want to add anyone to the church you are building, Jesus, this is it standing in front of you. And before we look ahead, how, is it you, how do you think that Nicodemus expects Jesus to respond to all of this? Probably something like, 
Nicodemus' brother. I have to tell you, you don't know how exhausting it is to be in my position, how much criticism that comes with it. Super encouraging. Thank you for saying that. I, it's good to know that somebody gets it. You might almost expect him to go grab his disciples and say, guys, well, welcome Nicodemus to the team. I've got great news. This guy's kind of a big deal, the kind of guy we want to be added. Great days are ahead of us. And yet, he doesn't respond that way to Nicodemus, does he? In verse 3, I want us to look at that verse. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you don't see anything. And you certainly don't belong to what I am building. Not unless you have been born again. Talk about throwing a guy off his balance. I have to tell you, this may really challenge not only what you think about Jesus, but what you think it means to be a Christian, let alone what it means to join a church, which is what we're talking about. Especially if you think that in coming to Jesus, you are doing God a favor. I realize there are plenty of other religions and spiritualities out there that frame true religion, true spirituality as being a good person or believing the best about people or being the kind of person that does right by most, the kind of person who truly and deeply believes in God and sees him at work in the world and wants to do him wants to do only what that God would want. Now, not perfectly, of course, but again, does right by most. That's what many religions would say is a person who is on the right side of things, the right side of God's love. They frame true spirituality as largely a matter of someone's own performance. In fact, there are many who lump Christianity into that category, many who, who also consider themselves to be Christians because they might go to church regularly or because, they, because it's just how they always have been raised. They're parents and grandparents were Christians, or because they believe in God, or because they like the chosen. And friends, none of these things is what makes a Christian. A Christian isn't even someone like Nicodemus, who has sized Jesus up and found him to be impressive. Someone who looks at Jesus and says, there he is, a great teacher who must be from God. That isn't even, not even that is what makes a Christian. I have to tell you, that's very popular today, to see Jesus as a great teacher of some sort. What makes a Christian, then? The new birth. For all that Nicodemus has, he does not have this. Jesus says to this insider, this influencer, the one who seems to be on Jesus' team, Nicodemus, I realize you think you see, but you don't. In fact, you can't. Not unless you will be born again. Who is the new birth for? To put it simply, the new birth is for the very ones who do not think they need it. Which leads us to the second question, where is it from? Where is it from? Now, one of my favorite movies growing up was Back to the Future. Not that I can recommend everything in it, so please don't come after me and say, oh my goodness, do you know some of, yes, I do know some of the lines and scenes, okay? So, but nonetheless, Back to the Future. I remember seeing this uh, movie, and I remember specifically one scene in which Marty McFly, who had been accidentally transported back to 1985, 
I mean, sorry, back from 1985 to 1955, um, and in case you're curious, yes, this came out before I was born, but was, again, transported back to 1955, and at the school dance, you'll probably remember the scene if you've seen it, picks up a guitar and starts playing Johnny Be Good. The only problem is, is that song by Chuck Berry has yet to be written yet. Rock and roll is not yet a thing. And while it starts off pretty well, the gymnasium kind of erupts in dancing, Eventually, everyone stops and stares as if Marty has lost his mind, and to which Marty famously says, I guess you guys weren't ready for that yet, but trust me, your kids are going to love it. As a kid, I remember imagining what it would be like to go into the future and to bring something back. In a sense, that is exactly what Jesus says is happening in the new birth. I remember uh, another pastor or teacher, I can't remember who it was, I'd give them credit for it if, the, if I did, um, putting it this way, imagine, imagine history laid out on a giant timeline. Our kids have to memorize uh, this timeline for homeschool and they're singing it all the time, okay? All these different events, okay? All leading up to one thing. At the end of this timeline, this side is what you might call the kingdom, a great level, a great line, and at the very end of it is the kingdom, the a world that God himself is making and will rule over. It is the happily ever after of the Bible, only it's not romantic, it's actual and practical. Uh, it is a world we long to have where God finally gets his way. And what makes that world real is that God himself will be there, the creator God of everything that exists, the redeemer of the world. He will be there, his presence and power undiluted. And it's a world in which heaven and earth are said to become one. What's interesting is that even though the kingdom of God is a major topic in the rest of the Gospels, and actually is in a great deal of the Bible, the kingdom is only mentioned in John's Gospel right here. Verses 3 and 5 is the only place that the kingdom ever shows up. In other words... If this is the only place where John mentions the kingdom, we better listen up to what he says. Something else that is really interesting, though, generally speaking, especially in the Old Testament, when it comes to referring to the kingdom, the kingdom is spoken of as almost entirely a future thing, the culmination of God's plans for everything he has made. It is the new world, the, the world we've longed for and finally will have, but it's entirely future. It's a, it's a world that is coming, and we have to wait for it. And we're reminded every time we are disappointed or heartbroken or angry and afraid. Some of you, uh, depending on the season of your life, you're longing for that more than ever. Life is only more full of loss, it seems. A reminder that this is not yet it. And we do not have that kingdom yet, in a sense. It is at the end of the stretching continuum of history. And yet, taking Jesus' word here seriously, getting back to that teacher's illustration, take that line as a great level. Taking Jesus' word seriously, it's as if God has taken that continuum, that level, and through Christ, tipped it backwards. Causing some of that kingdom power to flow backwards over into the present. In other words, the future world, the kingdom of God, is beginning now to show up. And how is it showing up? How is that 
future power and presence of God flowing into our world through the new birth. One of the things this brings for those who have experienced the new birth is an entirely different perspective on their life. It entirely reframes how someone sees their life, how they see current events, how they see politics, how they see the future, how they see everything that the world says you should put your ultimate trust and allegiance in, that should be of ultimate importance to you. It reframes how you see those things. It's as if the person who has experienced the new birth, if they are awake to it, if they're walking in step with it, it's as if they, they live their life with one step in the future, one foot on the solid ground of the kingdom. I've seen this uh, many times, uh, but I've seen it particularly with some of our oldest members. Um, I think of Rose Guion, many of you know and love her, who uh, can't leave her home now because of her own physical limitations. Last time we visited her, she's just in extreme daily pain, moving herself around her house in a wheelchair. And I've seen that kind of suffering make someone really bitter and angry at the world. And it's done the exact opposite to Rose. One thing you walk away with in those conversations is as if she has one foot already in the kingdom. She doesn't become passive with these days. She sees the days that she has. She says, I don't know how many days I have left, so I'm going to use them like they matter. And that's so that I might see others love my Jesus. Writing her letters and making our, those sweet packets we put out on holidays. Because she loves you and because she wants others to embrace her Jesus. It's as if she has one foot in the kingdom. It brings an entirely different perspective. But this new birth doesn't just bring a new perspective, it brings a new power as well. It is in someone who has experienced the new birth that you will begin to see something that is promised in the kingdom already at work. It makes it tangible. As we say, it makes the gospel visible. You will begin, in other words, to see the future peeking through as as if someone has been transported into the kingdom that is coming and brought something back. So what does it do? Who is it for? Where is it from? And what does it do? Really is the central question, and to understand it, we need to understand a bit more about the image itself. We need to think about it and why Jesus picks this image. It's pretty clear that Nicodemus has a hard time with it. Look at verse 4 with me. I don't know if we've got this on the screen, but, oh, I don't think we do. But Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, at first glance, you might think that Nicodemus is understanding Jesus literally. You might think, I mean, come on, Nicodemus. Even I know that Jesus is using a metaphor, duh. Now, let's give Nicodemus a little bit of credit here. He's a teacher of the law. He's not an idiot. He knows Jesus isn't speaking of literally climbing back into your mother's womb. He knows that Jesus is promising something different, something that is symbolized by this metaphor. But in Nicodemus's mind, the thing that he is picturing is just as impossible as if someone would enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. Jesus is promising too much, according to Nicodemus. What does he understand Jesus to promise? What is it exactly? It might be what you think the new birth refers to, a restart a do-over in life. Uh, our family loves to play Super Mario uh, together um, as a family, and uh, we also, as a family, just die all the time. We're always wandering off the side of the screen. But every time we do, when we run out of our lives, a wonderful little text box pops up and says, do you want to try again? 
and it gives us a do-over. It's wonderful, and we use it all the time, but that's, that's a video game. No one gets a do-over in life, do they? There is no control Z. You can't start the level over. I mean, I think we wish we could, right? Am I the only one who lays, lays awake at night wishing I had had the courage to say something I didn't say? Or the humility to not say what I did? How many mistakes, missed opportunities, play over in your imagination? We wish we could get a do-over, don't we? It's interesting. I've heard many describe Christianity as a religion of second chances. As if the central good news of the gospel was that we get a chance at a fresh start. Maybe in your mind, that's what the grace that God says we need is about. It's a grace to wipe the slate clean and to let you start again. Is that what the new birth is referring to? No, actually. The new birth is promising something better. I want you to notice verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Did you catch what Jesus is saying in this passage? The new birth doesn't simply slap a new name on the old thing. So I, um, I work in, I do some graphic design on the side, and I uh, watch this, I, I, I kind of have an interest in seeing graphic design around me, especially in companies do a rebranding. But I often have to roll my eyes, especially when a company uh, gives a new name and a new logo and a new icon for the world to see, and honestly, it's just the same broken thing. It's not fooling anybody. We've seen this all the time. Is that what the new birth is? It's simply slapping a new name on the old thing. No. And it's not like a restart like you might do with your phone. Your phone starts to get glitchy. What do you do? You reboot the old thing. The new birth is not slapping a new name on an old thing. It's not rebooting the old thing. No, the new birth produces a new thing. A new nature the person did not have before. Which means that the new birth doesn't just bring an entirely different perspective. It brings an entirely different kind of life. As real as the physical life that you have right now and you had when you were first conceived and when you, you then entered the world, pulling air into your lungs, a heart beating in your chest. I remember how weird it was for my kids see my kids breathe for the first time. According to Jesus, the person who has been born again has been given an entirely new and just as real kind of life. True life. It's what theologians refer to as regeneration. And because this new life is theirs, for those who have been born again, nothing about that person will ever remain the same. It's as if they've received an entirely different kind of nature, a new spirit, in fact, God's own spirit. In fact, in verse 5, Jesus speaks not just of being born of the Spirit. What does he say? He speaks of being born of water and Spirit. What does that mean? Specifically, what is the water here? I told you this gets confusing. Well, some have said that the water here is 
referring to being born physically, referring to something like uh, the amniotic fluid that surrounds a baby and breaks when they're being born. They're, being, they're born of water that is physically, and then they're born spiritually. Some have said that this refers to baptism, that, and some have linked in this passage that you must be baptized in order to be, in order to be a Christian, as well, to be saved. Now, I'm not going to argue that baptism isn't something a Christian should do. Every Christian ordinarily should be baptized. But I don't think this passage is actually saying either of those things. I don't think it's referring to physical birth, and I don't think it's referring to baptism as being saving. If you have, if you have questions about those specifically, we don't have the time to get to them, but I'd love to talk with you about this, as I would love to talk about anything in my passage. But I do want to focus on what I think that this is actually referring to, and my reasons for it. I think Jesus has a specific passage actually in mind in the Old Testament, one that the teacher of the law, Nicodemus, would have been familiar with, a passage we actually read during our confession of sin, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. And I want us to read it one more time, but I want you to look for the connection between these two images of water and spirit. See where they show up. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your, your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will, see, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Again, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be, okay, and be careful <clears throat> to obey my rules. Do you see the images there? Back to back. Water and spirit. Referred to in Ezekiel as bound up together. This is what Jesus says was once promised and now fulfilled in and through him. Through something he is now referring to by a new analogy. The new birth. Which brings always two kinds of things. Through the water and the spirit it brings cleansing and transformation. A cleansing that is both total and enduring. A cleansing from what? From sin. And it's all of its tarnishing effects and consequences. Scrubbing the soul, not just of past sin, but this is very important, but of present and future sin as well. Again, if this is true, the one who's experienced the new birth, what sins were cleansed? What sins were still future? All of them, if God has chosen to say before the foundations of the earth, which means all of your sins have been taken part of the total package Tearing up the idols that we have so long worshipped. Tearing them up by the roots and all the guilt that was bound up with them. It is total and enduring cleansing. But not just cleansing, but bound up with it a transformation, a power as real and radical as if you were to take a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. A heart that is finally able to beat finally able to live, finally able to trust and obey God. Cleansing and transformation, they go together. Justification, you'll hear in the Bible, and holiness. The assurance of forgiveness and the power to obey. In a sense, the new birth brings them both together. The believer is, in a sense, prepared then for this new kingdom that they already have entered and will soon be swept into. Let me put this differently. Um, let me ask, do people ever really change? 
It's a very important question. Do people actually really change? You know, that question shows up all the time in our culture. You'll hear it. I encourage you to watch for it uh, in movies and TV, how often the themes are based around, does someone actually ever really change? Do you know the Bible's actually very pessimistic about that question? Especially if that kind of change is merely a matter of tapping into my own internal resources. That if I could, as if I could really change by doing better and trying harder. The Bible's very pessimistic about that. It would assume that a person not actually fundamentally can change. We've looked at this in previous sermons, but we may control one area of our life, but the same desires are there. It'll pop up in another one in the whack-a-mole game, right? So you hit one sin and it pops up somewhere else. The loves have not changed. It's why the new birth can't simply be a do-over. It can't simply be a restart of the same old broken thing because we would end up doing the same thing we always have done. The whole Bible is the proof of it. It's why Ezekiel is speaking to Israel who's seen that doing better and trying harder is not enough. We would do what we always have done. We would be who we always have been. According to Jesus, if we really are to change, we need a change of nature. According to Jesus, we need a new spirit. We need a heart of flesh when all we have is a heart of stone. And according to Jesus, that is exactly what the new birth brings. Do people ever change? A Christian must say, if we're taking Jesus seriously, no. That is, they do not change on their own. But also, in a different sense, yes. Anyone who will receive the new birth emphatically, yes, will change. You should have understood this, Nicodemus, Jesus is saying. Don't marvel at it. As a, as a teacher of Israel, your scriptures promise this very thing. But until you experience it yourself, you will never understand these things. You will never surrender. You will never rest upon me. You will never know it. Which leads to the next question, how does it come? Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know from where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is switching metaphors on us. It's almost like he's intentionally trying to keep Nicodemus on this. It's like jerking the, uh, like a clutch around. To, anybody still know what a clutch is? Okay, but nonetheless, right? Jerking around in the, in the driver's seat, going different directions, a different metaphor now. What we might miss here first is the Hebrew and the Greek. Uh, actually, uh, the word for wind is the same word as the word for spirit. And so it's a natural image embedded in it. But I want you to think about the image itself. Actually, I've used this illustration with my kids before, talking about how can we know that God really exists and is at work when we cannot see him? It's a very real and tangible question for a kid, and maybe you've asked it too. Can you see the wind? No, you cannot see the wind. Then how do we know that it's there? Well, you can't deny its effects. You ever walked out your house and everything seems calm and you open that door and it blasts open, right? You cannot deny its effects. Even in something as extreme as a tornado, are you seeing the wind itself? No, you're seeing all that it stirs up. The other thing about wind, though, is that you can't predict when it is going to come or where it will go next. 
You might say, I mean, today, yes, with all our modern technology, we can predict when cold fronts and warm fronts are going to collide. But just ask any meteorologist worth their salt, and there's so much that we still cannot predict. How many times has it been proven wrong? You remind ourselves, too, none of this technology existed then. And again, our predictions are often the opposite of what the reality ends up being. So it is with God's spirit. We cannot predict who he falls upon, who he grants new birth to. And when it comes to it, there is nothing you can do to control him. You can see where he shows up, but like the wind, God's spirit blows where he wishes. The more you think about that, I actually, it might immediately make you uncomfortable, and it probably should, especially if your image of Christianity is all about what you do, how you perform. Here it's saying the only Christian, the only one who experiences new birth, is someone who, by God's grace and his alone, has had the Spirit blow on them, come upon them. I have to tell you, though, this makes sense of my experience and maybe yours as well. There are some I have shared the gospel with who... I thought demonstrated all the signs of being eager and interested in Christianity, who it seemed God was preparing for the moment when I could welcome them into the family, who found the gospel instead then to be meh, who either found it to be compelling and then drifted or never found it to be compelling in the first place. I don't know how many people, I thought we were right there. This was the perfect opportunity. This was the top recruit. And they looked at Jesus and said, and then I tell you again if if this passage were not true I just need to tell you if this passage were not true I would be bearing then all sorts of insecurity and guilt saying it must be me it must be my fault now that doesn't give me an excuse not to uh, to share the gospel and it certainly doesn't give me the excuse to be unclear and unnecessarily offensive with the gospel it doesn't give me an excuse not to proclaim the gospel without passion and urgency but when it comes down to it, the Spirit blows where he will. Well, at other times where I've had those who've just kind of looked and said, meh, I've had times where God totally catches me by surprise. You heard a little bit of this last week when we interviewed Chris, one of my good friends, who we had the privilege of welcoming into this family. I had the privilege of welcoming him into this family despite the fact that I really t- relatively did nothing to contribute to it. I got to see all the fruit of which I did almost none of the watering. In fact, I was so focused on building trust in that relationship and waiting for the right moment to get to the gospel, all the while missing that God was way ahead of me. God was already preparing soft ground. God was already working more than I ever could have expected. God caught me by surprise. Conversion is not something that you can predict or control, and it is definitely not something that we should count up before the transformation of new birth that new birth always comes with has an opportunity to show itself. The new birth is not something you can manipulate by playing the right chords or memorizing the right speech or taking for granted that it's already happened. How How can we experience it then? How can you be born again? You might be asking that this morning. Again, if we're all, if we're dependent upon the spirit and its work, does that leave us hopeless? Somebody who's really eager and wants it, God's going to say, no. No, according to the Bible, that interest, that engagement, that presence of that faith is all by grace. It is all because of a gift of God, because he has chosen to open eyes, and he gets the credit for it. 
How can you be born again? Well, in a sense, we must say that there is nothing actually you can do. There is nothing you can do to earn or manipulate it, that is. Instead, according to Jesus, the new birth is not something you work for. It is instead something you receive the work of someone else for. To receive the new birth, you must receive the work of someone else. In many ways, I think you see this in the image of, the, of birth itself. After all, what child had anything to do with their own birth? What, any chi- what child had anything to say, could say anything about their birth? What child, what baby contributed anything to their birth other than the pain and difficulty it took to bring them into the world? And all the moms in here said, amen. I've seen birth four times now in the room, and I can tell you there is only one person in that room that can take credit for Not me and not that baby. But Jesus gives us another fascinating picture of what this looks like, and this one is even more important. He refers back to the Old Testament, to the book of Numbers, chapter 21, to a plague of serpents, actually. Uh, Fiery serpents, it says, that God sent among his people at one point after they yet again complained that God had the audacity to do something like bring them out of slavery. Complaining about this food that he had the audacity to give them that they were bored with now of course he brought them out of egypt where they were so happy and god rightfully and justly sends this plague of serpents and so many die however in the midst of this terrible plague he also provided a way for the people to be saved he had moses make a bronze serpent a symbol not just of their sin but of Sin itself, I think, looking back to the serpent in the Garden of Eden, holding up a a symbol of the curse that sin had inflicted upon the world that we were seeing on fast forward as the fiery serpents struck amongst them. He instead has him make this bronze serpent to bind it to a pole and to lift it for all of the people to see. If they would only look upon that serpent, no sacrifices, no claims of obedience, simply look and see the serpent, that person would live. What a powerful picture of what faith is. Faith isn't a work we do. Faith, in a sense, is giving up on those kind of works, giving up on all my attempts to save myself, aware not only of the curse that I am under, that I can't do anything to remove, but also a trust, a sight of the one who can. Not only giving up the attempts to save myself, but trusting the only one who could. Faith is resting in the fruit of someone else's work, seeing him, the one who had been lifted up, resting all of my hopes for salvation on him. How does the new birth come? According to Jesus, it must come from outside of myself, not within. It must come from a power that I do not have, and it will come at infinite cost to Jesus himself. Jesus picks this metaphor, not just as a picture of faith, but a picture of how salvation would be accomplished as he himself would be lifted up. That phrase there is a metaphor for his own death as he himself is bound to a wooden post, dying the death that we deserved for our own stubborn rebellion. 
and instead to ha- that all those who would look upon him in faith, who would give up on their own work and receive his, may not just have life, but have eternal life, a life that is full and goes on forever. According to verse 16, quote it with me, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. According to our passage, that is the only way to receive access to the kingdom and its power, to receive something far better than a restart or a rebrand, to receive an entirely different nature. Apart from it, Jesus says, we stand condemned already. That's the state. We stand already cursed. The path was set. But for those who trust in Jesus, who truly see him because of the Spirit, trust him for the forgiveness of their sins, those whose who the Spirit blows upon and causes them to see, they will not perish but have eternal life. This claim is remarkable, as is the authority Jesus claims to give it. He claims to speak this way, to give this audacious claim, because he speaks as one who has come from heaven itself. He says, I know because I have been there. We speak of what we know, what we have seen. I think he's making fun of Nicodemus at this point when he says, we have made up our minds about you. And he says, well, we know that you don't know what you're talking about. We have seen what's really true. Jesus is seen because he's been there firsthand. He is not like any other religious figure then. He speaks from God as God. No wonder Nicodemus has a hard time believing it. After all, if it's not true, Jesus quite simply should not be trusted. He's claiming that kind of authority. And it's not true. If he is not who he claims to be, he is either incredibly arrogant or he is off his rocker and everything he promises is a false hope. But if he is who he says he is, then you can build your life upon what he offers. Friend, I need to ask you, is this salvation yours? Do you have the new birth? The reason I'm asking that is actually for those who say, well, yeah, of course. You might have actually imagined your entire life that you were a Christian But is it possible that Jesus would say the same thing to Nicodemus to you? Is it possible that Jesus is saying, not to the person sitting next to you, but to you, friend, I I realize you think you understand, but you don't. You don't know. And because you don't know, you do not receive. And because you do not receive, you will not believe. And unless you believe, you stand condemned already. Is it possible God is saying those words to you? I don't mean to be unnecessarily provocative, but isn't Jesus provocative here? Why? Out of great love for the one he warns, the one who has assumed his relationship with God for far too long. We need to ask our final question then. Not who is it for or where is it from, how does it, what does it do and how does it come, but how can you tell? I remember getting together with a friend some time ago who I had the privilege of not only explaining the gospel to, but watched uh, what I strongly suspected was the new birth take place. It was awesome just so life-giving. There's nothing more exciting. But over the next six months, due to some job changes and crazy schedules, we couldn't get together. And I was, you know, honestly, I was just terribly nervous about it. I kept trying to, and finally when we did, I was nervous that all of that spiritual interest he once had would have cooled off. Maybe that he had done what I've seen so many do over the years, that now that they figure that they have gotten things square with God, they move on with their life and continue to ignore him and so prove that the new birth actually never happened. 
I don't mean to be so cynical. I just have seen it so often in those who consider themselves to be Christians and yet demonstrate so much antipathy to Jesus today. In fact, I have at least one friend in my mind today who, despite all of the times that we used to meet and talk about faith, now demonstrates very little interest, simply slipped back into business as usual, simply said thanks very much and has moved on. Yet when I got together with this friend, it was clear that something had shifted. Despite over these six months where I had very little pouring into his life, watering this fruit, something had shifted. Even though he was still struggling to figure out what it is like to follow Jesus, like a toddler that is learning to walk, something had changed. He had begun to care about things that he once never did, like reading the Bible or or talking about spiritual things with his wife, even though it's awkward. Certain things began to bug him that once never did, and some things that seemed to be so important just weren't. In fact, one of the signs that I think the new birth has taken place is because he was realized how far short of obedience he was and how much he wanted it. His categories had changed. How can you tell when the new birth has taken place? As Jesus puts it, you will see the evidence. The works did not save them, but the works are the overflow. Like wind stirring up the dust, affections, attitudes, and actions will begin to change every time. Now, they may not show up the same way in everyone's life or at the same rate, but if the Spirit really is replacing a heart of stone with a heart of flesh, do you think that's going to change something? The, that the repentance and faith that they once demonstrated, do we expect that it actually will continue to mark their life? Not perfectly, absolutely. But it will continue to remain if it's a new spirit that is within them, and that spirit isn't a fickle spirit, leaving, but staying, sealing them for the day of their salvation. Don't we expect that that spirit starts to do stuff? Starts to break down walls and renovate the place? Instead of hiding in the dark, this gets on to our next verses, keeping things back from God, holding back certain relationships, or covering up certain sins, loving what the dark allows us to hide. Again, that's how many treat Jesus. They prefer, they love the darkness more than him. Instead, the person who's experienced the new birth wants eagerly to come into the light, to open up their life to God in an authentic and ongoing way for him to reveal any offensive way, and that their works might be seen to have been carried out in him, as verse 21 puts it, that they've been carried out in God, by God, the product of his work, just as the salvation was, to the praise of his spirit, saying, God, look at what you're doing here. Yes, those who have experienced the new birth will find God messing with things. You won't always want him to be right. You won't always agree that His way is best. It will make your life in many ways more uncomfortable once you experience it. As you begin to care about things you once used to roll your eyes at, but you will begin to care. You will find that even as you still want those other things, even as you still want your life to stay the same, you will want Jesus more. Of course, this comes with great struggle and a lot of failure, but the effects of it are real and certain, as certain as a baby who is no longer in the womb. Friends, does this describe you? Again, it's hard for us to see ourselves. Ask someone you trust. Do you see the fruit of the Spirit in me? And is it possible, and I know some of those on our minds right now are those who have wandered from the faith that we love. And we want to comfort ourselves while they made the right decision long ago. Friends, is it possible they never experienced the new birth? If this is true. 
Let me encourage you, the thing that you need to do first is not to start cleaning up their life so they look more like a Christian. Give them the gospel again and again and again as you give it to yourself. Confront them with the love and urgency of Jesus. Begin with him. One of my favorite illustrations that I want to close with, I heard recently of this, was from the life of John Barrage, or rather from actually not his life, but his death. And I just want to die this way. I just, I have to tell you. He was the vicar of St. Mary's Church in Everton, Bedfordshire. And here is the epitaph on his tombstone. Listen to this. Here lie the earthly remains of John Barrage, late vicar of Everton. Reader, art thou born again? No salvation without the new birth. I was born in sin, February 1716. Remained ignorant of my fallen state until 1730. Lived proudly on faith and works for salvation until 1754. Was admitted to Everton Vicarage, the pastor there, 1755. Fled to Jesus alone for refuge, 1756. Fell asleep in Christ, January 22nd, 1793. Friend, art thou born again? Only those who are, and everyone who is, even if you are the vicar of Everton, only those who are and everyone who is can join the church, the outpost of heaven on earth. Father, we come to you as those who, if we are Christians, hold one thing in common, and that's that you have chosen to save, not for our own name's sake, but for your own, who have brought the, your spirit upon us despite our rebellion and ongoing blindness, that you have opened our eyes to the truth of our own sin and the beauty of our Savior, and we praise you for it. For those here who wonder if they are Christians, if they have had the new birth, would they look at Christ and behold him? Would they realize they have been resting in the wrong places, trusting in the wrong things to save? And would they give up all that and rest upon what he has done for them, upon his works, confessing they need his salvation and that he can be trusted as Lord? Lord, would they discover that even as that genuine, as uh, that decision, as genuine and profound as it is, that choosing to turn to Christ and to put their faith in him, eventually they are going to see that was all God to begin with. He deserves the credit for it. And Lord, today would you save and would you bind us together in humility around this glorious gospel? And would we not waste our time pretending as if our work saved us, but warn one another as we see those around us who have cooled on Christ or living self-righteous lives, assuming they are saved, saved by their performance, would we warn the Nicodemuses and we not, we not be among them? We need your mercy and help for all these things. And as we pray all this for, gloria, for Christ's glorious sake, who is building his church, a church that the gates of hell won't prevail against, a church that will be presented beautiful and spotless before him, all is grace, and it's for Christ's sake we pray. Amen.